But a real joy uh, to be here with you today and to open uh, the Word of God with you. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take, um, I'm going to just speak in my time. I've got you today, right now. And then I got the session tonight, I, I, today, I think it's at three. So I get two shots at you. And anytime you come in an opportunity like this and you're not the pastor of this group, and I'm so thankful for Tanner and John and Justin and these guys who give leadership here, but you realize your limitations. So what I decided to do uh, this year at the advanced conference with you is I want to address the men if I could, this morning, just a very specific word. If you have notes, I'm calling it the indispensable quality. And then what I want to do in the afternoon, I think it's at three o'clock, I want to address the women specifically. And then, of course, uh, Brian Hughes has given the opportunity to preach in the pulpit. We'll do something different tomorrow morning. I'm going to speak on a couple of the attributes of God, namely his knowledge and, and really uh, his wisdom. I want to really speak on the wisdom of God, but to get to the wisdom of God, I have to first address the knowledge of God. That will just be tomorrow morning. But for our time today, this morning, a word to you as men, and then this afternoon, a specific word to you as women. I want to begin with a count, a story of a man that they called the human fly. He was an expert rock climber, and he turned showman. And what the human fly did is he traveled from city to city, and as he would go into these cities, he would scale the exterior surface of the buildings that presented him the greatest challenge. And he would set the stage as he went in advance with publicity aimed at drawing a crowd of curious onlookers. Then early on in the morning of the targeted date, just as the people would arrive from work, he would begin to climb the town's tallest skyscraper. On one such occasion, thousands of people had gathered during the lunch hour to watch the human fly scale a large building. And as they watched, the crowd became aware that his upward progress had ceased. You can just kind of picture that in your mind. They observed him first moving to the left, then to the right, seemingly unable to get over the ledge that kind of jetted out from the building several hundred feet above them. Then it seemed as if the fly had figured out what to do. And the crowd watched him stretching his arm above the ledge, trying to grasp hold of something and not quite able to reach it. His body, what, what the human fly did is he jumped upward, his outstretched arm grasping toward the unseen object. Then, to the horror of the crowd, the human fly right there fell to his death. And before the ambulance drove the body away, the medical examiner opened the climber's clenched fist and in the human fly's hand was a dusty spider web. And what seemed to be solid enough to grasp was actually just a fragile cobweb that was covered with dust. He thought he was grabbing something firm only to be deceived. And I think when I think of the story of the 
human fly. It symbolizes the tragedy that I think is threatening the modern American male. In a culture that has reshaped men and has redefined the meaning of masculinity, many fathers, many husbands, many men that are single are striving for something solid to hang on to, but they're grasping at flimsy cobwebs. And rather than grasping at something that is unsure, I want to bring you men to a very sure word from the Word of God. A word that's specifically given to you. So I don't know where you come in the event today, where you come into the advance, but I'm wondering where you single men are. And by the way, uh, women, you're welcome to listen to this because you want to make sure that as a single woman, this is the type of quality that you're looking for in a man. And so men, the scripture is going to call you to be this man. Women, you need to be attracted to this kind of man. And it's what I call the one indispensable quality. Now that sounds like something you would just say, the one indispensable quality. Maybe it's just not that simple. And I don't mean to be so... um, you know, uh, just overarching, but I really believe it is the one indispensable quality that we find in the Word of God, overarching all that a man must be. So men, here's my proposition to you. If you're going to advance this morning in sanctification, you're going to have to gain mastery over this quality. It's the one thing that Paul instructs us in the Word of God. And what I want you to do here for our time this morning is take your Bible and open it to the book of Titus. Will you do that? To the book of Titus. And we're going to be looking at that quality out of this wonderful pastoral epistle. As you're turning there, just a little bit of a backdrop for you this morning. You will recall that Titus was a pastor of a local church. That church was on the Mediterranean island, I think you know, of Crete. And when Paul wrote this letter to Titus, he wrote it with two very specific purposes in his mind. In fact, you can see it. Look at Titus 1.5. He said, for this reason... He's really clear there, is he not? I left you in Crete. Here's why. That you might, number one, set in order what remains, number one, and the second reason is to appoint elders in every city as I have directed you. He told him to put in order what remains. I'm fascinated by that Greek word of order. The the word order there. It speaks of something, if you will, that was fragmented or broken. And so Paul, if you will, the aged apostle, picks his son in the faith, Titus, and kind of parachutes him in, into this island of Crete, and he said, Titus, I'm leaving you there for two reasons. I want you to fix what is broken, and I want you to put it in order. And then secondly, I want you to appoint elders. You know, when my son Kyle um, was growing up, uh, this is Johnny here. I have another son, Kyle. Kyle broke bones all the time. 
He just, and I became first name basis with orthopedic surgeons where I grew up in California. One time in, on Thanksgiving, um, Kyle was climbing on a bed when he was a fairly young boy and he fell back on a metal bunk bed that we got from Wheaton College and just split his head open. So I had to take him down on Thanksgiving, get him stitched up. He gets home that same afternoon and somehow ended up on the bed again. And one of the other kids either grabbed him or jumped him or he was trying to do a flip, fell off the bed, got stitches again. I mean, that was just kind of common. He broke bones. He broke elbows. He, I mean, I, I knew the orthopedic surgeons and they would contort his body back into, into full practice is really what the word means. And when you think of pastoral ministry, pastoral ministry really is setting things in order. It's fixing things that are broken. So he left Titus. Listen, I want you to go into this church at Crete and I want you to put it in order. I want you to take those bones that are fragmented, take those parts that are, that are broken, if you will, and put it back in order so that it's functioning in harmony. And then secondly, I want you to appoint elders. Now, one of the ways that Paul addressed the problem on the island of Crete was to spell out God's design for various people in various groups. You remember, he speaks, does he not, in chapter two to the older men. He speaks in chapter two to the older women. He speaks in chapter two to the younger women, namely older women. You put these seven qualities in the life and heart of these younger women. And then he also speaks to the younger men. And then he also in Titus chapter two speaks to those who were workers and employees. Now then he gave something very specific to the young men. And that's what I want to draw your attention to. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 6. He says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say to us. I, I find it amazing in Titus 2, 6, that he really just says one thing to the young men. You say one thing, well, yeah, look, again, in 2.6, urge the young men to be sensible. He's going to then go on in 7 and 8 and begin to unpack a few other qualities, but I tend to believe that when he gets to 2.7 and 2.8, look at the language again. He says, in all things, show what? Yourself. To be an example, it says there, of good deeds and so forth. When Paul says in 2.7, to show yourself to be an example, I believe he's addressing Titus there. And again, by implication to those who are in pastoral ministry and by secondary application to young men. But I really believe when you get to 2.7, Paul is telling Titus himself, Titus, if you just kind of eavesdrop on his language, I want you to show yourself to be an example. And then he told Titus what he needed to be as a pastor. But what's fascinating, men, to you men this morning, he really just says one thing. Look at it again in 2.6. He tells them there to urge the young men to be what? Sensible. 
Now, what's so unique for me, as I've mentioned, if you back up in the text, if you back up in Titus chapter 1, look what he says to the older, excuse me, in Titus 2, 2, look what he says to the older men there. He gives them a a little bit of a grocery list. You need to be temperate. You need to be dignified. He mentions the word sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. He gives the older men a little bit of a, a list. You'll note likewise, older women, you need in two, three, to be reverent in their behavior. One, two, not malicious gossips. Three, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And then an older woman in two, four, encourages the young women in seven qualities there. Love their husbands, love their children. Sensible, do you see that in five? Sensible is to the elder. Sensible in chapter one, sensible is to the older man. Sensible here is to the young older women to teach the younger woman. He says it there and then he lists workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, etc. There's seven qualities that an older woman is to train a younger woman in. But when you get to the young men, which by the way, as this came to us from the Spirit of God, I believe it comes to you as live now as when Paul penned it. So men, I really believe when I step up here, I'm preaching the word of God and I'm calling you to what Paul told Titus to tell the young men on the island of Crete. So the one indispensable quality is that quality of sensibility. Now what I want to do is look at four components of sensibility with you that provide a young man with hope in the midst of a wicked culture in which we live, okay? I want to limit my role. My time is limited. I only have so much. So let me get one thing across to you. Let me walk away with this one thing. Man, I promise you this. If you master this quality, you control your life. And I, think about it. He just said one thing to him. If you don't master this quality, you could never advance in your sanctification. And so it is kind of funny. Number of things to older men, older women, younger women, but one thing to you men. Very well, what are these components? Let me move through them fairly quickly. Number one, the age of a younger man. He says here, and you could see it, I'm just right out of the text, urge the young men. Well, how old is a young man? Who is Paul telling Titus to to speak to the young men? Who are these young men? Well, I believe that phrase young men is both relative and it's both objective. Number one, it's relative to age. You would agree with me that a younger man is obviously younger than an older man. He's a young man. He's not an old man. He's a young man. So it's relative to age. But secondly, in that phrasing there, it's objective to station in life. When you think of an older man, you think of a man that has experienced life. You think of a man that has raised children. A younger man, you would affirm, just even in our culture, tends to be inexperienced. Now, let me just draw this out just a little bit. Boys, culturally speaking, in the time of writing, Boys that were 12 and under were considered children, okay, fair? Generally speaking, men over 40 were considered older men. 
And so when you get to the age, who's he talking to? He's talking to the young men. It would be very fair to say that a young man is anywhere from the age of 13, maybe up to 40, okay? That's a broad stroke biblically off the meaning of the word. So this exhortation would obviously include single men, It would include this exhortation to young married men. It would include maybe even an exhortation to men in their 30s. These are certainly qualities that young fathers should master as well as train in their sons. So that's the age of sensibility. Secondly, though, the meaning of sensibility. You can see it again. Urge the young men to be sensible. What does it mean to be sensible? Let's take it out of the ethereal. It just means, sophroneo is the word. It, it speaks of sound thinking is what the word means. It literally means to be self-controlled. To be self-controlled. Now you'll note there at the beginning, the opening word in the NASB is likewise. Likewise, in other words, amazing biblical content here, just as the elders are to be sensible, just as older men are to be sensible, just as older women are to be sensible, to train the young women to be sensible, young men this morning, by the authority of the word of God, you are commanded to be sensible. Now, step back just for a second. He didn't urge the young men. He could have said a number of things. He doesn't. He didn't say, I urge the young men to be godly, which I guess would be great. He didn't come and say, I want to urge the young men to be men of faith, which is a noble quality, but he didn't say that. He didn't, on the other hand, even say, I want to urge you young men to be courageous in a wicked society. He didn't come on the authority of the word of God and say, I want to urge you young men to be loving which is a great noble quality in other texts. He didn't come and tell the young men, you need to be leaders. No, the only thing that he says to you men is to be sensible. Now look at the text again in 2.6. He says, I want to urge the young men. Urge is the word parakaleo. It's the ideal of strongly entreating someone. Sometimes that word urge is translated to plead with someone. So as you look at the text, here is Titus, if you will, pleading and urging these young men to be sensible. And the uh, the concept here is I want you, Titus, Paul, speaking to Titus, I want you to persuade with authority these young men to be sensible. In other words, young men, I'm telling you this, this is not a suggestion for you. This is not an option for you. This is a command from the word of God that's bolstered by the grace of God, made possible through the spirit of God, and you can live this out. But very well, a little closer, what is it on the meaning? Sensibility brings discernment, and obviously this can grow. It's the concept of wisdom, if you will. It can be kind of teased out there that it's the avoidance of extremes. Literally, you can say that a sensible sensible man is in his right mind. He is not mindless. And here's even a little closer. He's not led by his emotions. He is a level-headed man. In fact, let me just give you this illustration where this word is used. You might remember it. 
Remember when the dude in Mark 5 had legion inside of him? I mean, this guy wasn't filled with one demon. He was filled with multiple demons. And nobody can control the guy. He came out of the caves. He cut himself. He gnashed himself. They put him in chains. He broke the chains. He threw himself in the fire. And then remember, just with a word, Jesus cast the demons out of that man. And it says this in Mark 5, 15. They observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down Remember the phrase, and clothed in his right, what? Mind. The man who was uncontrollable, cured by Christ, sitting down, no longer out of control, but clothed in his right mind, the very man who had legion. And when they saw this, they became frightened. You get the picture in your mind. This guy who was utterly out of control, suddenly through the power of Christ became in control. And when you're in control, he's sitting down and he's in his right mind. Now think back just for a moment on this quality biblically in the text. If you look back in chapter 112, remember what he said there? One of themselves, a prophet of their own, which we probably believe is Epimenides, okay? One of themselves, a prophet of their own. You know this phrase, verse 12. Cretans are always, what? Liars. This culture, if I could phrase it this way, was out of control with their tongue. They lied, And I've been around cultures that lying is part of their culture to one point where one woman missionary told me she had a woman in her house and she found out some things about this woman's life who had been serving with her five years. And she said, Scott, it is such a pack of lies. I don't even know who this woman is. Such duplicity. And you get into this culture, the Cretans were liars. That's why sometimes even when I think about advance and people say, it's so hard to be a believer in the 21st century. Listen, if you want to go read something about the Cretan culture, it was a debauched culture. In fact, from my reading, it would be way beyond Las Vegas itself. If you think, oh, that, you know, there's sin all around us and there's cities of sin. This was a debauched culture. So think about sensibility where they were liars out of control with their tongue. He told these men, you need to be sensible. Then he said, look at verse 12. They're always liar. They're evil. What? He says in 112, beast. They had an out of control tongue. They had out of control behavior. They were functioning like beast. Look again at 112. And they are lazy, what? Gluttons. Out of control tongue, out of control behavior, out of control appetite, if you will. And Paul just said, you see it there at the beginning of 113, this testimony is what? True. So being sensible, men, is living with self-restraint. It's living with self-mastery. It is self-control over your desires, over your passions, Now, look at the text again, and I'm still just kind of building this with you. Look what it says back in Titus 2, 6. He says, urge the young men to be sensible, comma. Then look at verse 7. In all things, it says, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. The question is, does the all things have to do with the last phrase, to be sensible, or does he say to Titus, in all things, you know, Titus, show yourself. I think the all things actually goes back to the end of six. 
I think what the text is saying, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in every aspect of their life. You young men are not to be enslaved by habits. You are not to be enslaved by vices. You are not to be enslaved by weaknesses. In other words, a young man that's sensible does not allow his desires, his lust, his expectations, his anger to control him. Why? He's sensible. He's clothed in his right mind. He's under control of the spirit of God. Not a week goes by where I don't hear of somebody falling to pornography. But here, young, this young man, as he wants to walk under the umbrella of God's blessing, is seeking to control the appetites and the desires. In other words, he's spiritually alert. He's navigating his life uh, by the chart of God's word alone. He's self-controlled, okay? The age the meaning. Thirdly, can I just speak to you on the need for sensibility? The need for sensibility. Obviously, there's, there's much to be said here and probably way beyond the scope of what I have time for. But I've really been studying this subject over the years. I think part of the reason is Rick and I have always really been our entire life in the context of college students. I mean, Rick pastored in the college group called Crossroads. I was the pastor previous to him. We've always really been around young men, and there's kind of a cultural phenomena today going on in our own culture, and it cuts across um, all demographics. You'll find it in families that are rich and poor, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, urban, suburban, rural, okay? According to the Census Bureau, and I just mentioned some of these things on the need, fully one-third of men ages 22 through 34 are still living at home with their parents. It's interesting, In other words, culturally speaking, it is roughly a 100% increase in the past 20 years in the United States. And what's amazing is that statistic is not true with young women. Young women are responsible. They're going to school. They're getting their degrees and so forth. But the men aren't. Then as I begin to explore this, I came across an article in the Sunday Times. That would be a paper in London. And it reports that the young British men are turning into what they call eternal bachelors. And the nation in Britain is turning into what he called a bachelor nation. In fact, the article went on to say men are marrying now, marrying at a rate, if you will, lower at any other time than the most intense years of World War II. In fact, it goes on to say these young men are not even cohabitating. They are just living, it said, as irresponsible teenager. And the newspaper reported, quote, that while the fall in marriage is well documented, it has widely been thought that this is because couples are moving in together instead. But the LSE, the London School of Economics Study, designed to test this notion, found growing numbers of men are simply not forming serious relationships until later in life. In other words, they're just not growing up. 
To which Al Mohler said, a civilization that fails to encourage its young men to accept adult roles and adult responsibilities, especially the responsibility of marriage, is sowing the seeds of its own destruction. And so this quality is mentioned and you begin to see the need. Men are growing up later and later and later. In fact, they're beginning to coin new terms. Have you heard these terms? They're calling, they call these boomerang kids. They're just, they're never leaving home. They're never taking on responsibility. They're delaying marriage. And it's not just that they're living together. So they call these new men cadults. You heard that? Cadults, not kids, not adults, but cadults. And they still live with their parents. They hop around from job to job, from relationship to relationship. They lack direction. They lack commitment. They lack financial independence. They lack personal responsibility. They are adult teenagers. teenagers, And the article went on to say they're much more than a temporary fad. The article went on to say, where are they today? You know what they've coined this term? Have you hold it, heard this? They call them adult essence. Not adolescence, but adult essence. They're, they're adults, they're young men, but they're just not responsible. It said that they call them Peter Pans that shave, okay? And they're still playing video games. Now here, I'm not here to argue that you shouldn't play a video game any more than somebody might watch sports, but you got to monitor to that. I was really shocked when, and it doesn't pertain to you as much, but did you know how much video games the average eighth grader plays a week? 18 hours on video games. Did you know, you know those uh, stores, video game outlets, is it called GameStop? Do you know what the average age of a video gamer is? 33. Interesting. And even, Rick, I would attest when I was at the Master's College, there's guys staying up all night in the dorms on Halo. Never going to bed, just staying up, just playing video games. I'm not saying don't ever play. But I'm telling you, we've entered into a culture of cadults. Adult essence, Peter Pan's that shave, kind of strapping off, if you will, the the thought of responsibility and not really even gaining it. In fact, let me just quickly give you a little acrostic on the word sensible, why this quality is so important to you men. Can I do that? And I'm just going to make it on the word sensible and just walk right down and establish why why this is the only indispensable quality, at least in Titus, that he gives to us. Number one is S, okay? Okay, here's the need for sensibility because men are facing sexual temptation. And at a time when a young man is faced with such temptations, Paul admonishes, does he not, Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22 to flee youthful, what? Lust. Isn't it interesting? He told him to flee and he calls him there youthful lust. It doesn't mean that an older man isn't going to struggle with that, but often in the, in the thought of a young man, he's not sensible. He goes by his glands. He goes by his emotions. He goes by how he feels. And here the word of God says, counterculture to you, young men. There's a need here because you're facing sexual temptation. I'm thinking of what David said in Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure but by keeping it according to his word? Man, I promise you this. The next three years, you will be determined by what you do with this quality. 
You will either become a man that's advancing in God's sanctification, fighting sin, or you will succumb to temptation that will take you farther and faster than you ever want to go down that path. You just have to be very careful. And at this point, you have to be careful with what you see on the screen. Because this need for sensibility is apparent because there's sexual temptations all over the place. I mean, sensibility to you, young man, is so important because if without that quality, it can destroy you. I mean, it was a lack of this quality that destroyed Alexander the Great. Do you ever remember reading about this guy? I mean, this Alexander the Great was a young man who had everything a man could ever desire. He was the son of Philip of Macedon, that great Greek king. So when you asked here, Alexander, well, who's your dad? Well, my dad is, is King Philip. Oh, really? So here's this guy. He's got the perfect pedigree, if you will, of a leader. He grew up in his father's palace. His friend and teacher, have you heard of him? Was a guy named Aristotle, okay? His body, when you look at the annuals of history, was said to be a specimen of masculine perfection. He married, in the history books, the most beautiful princess in the known world. I mean, the guy had everything that a young man could desire or want. But the truth is, young men, at the age of 33, Alexander the Great died from complications of alcoholism, and my notes say veneral disease. He died from an STD. So it's amazing, the man who had conquered the then known world, the world, literally, never conquered himself. Men, you have got to gain self-mastery over your passions. And so there's a need for sound judgment and self-control in a time when your passions are seeking to rule. Secondly, just S-E for sensible, exiting authority. Here's why this is so important. You young men, it could be, not all of you. I'm speaking here in some generalities. You're exiting authority. First time you're away Possibly from answering to mom and dad. Exiting an authority possibly from your own church. And sometimes when you exit that authority as a young man, there's a newfound freedom. There's a world of opportunities. There's more things that can go wrong. Add that to the lack of discernment. You're no longer the umbrella sometimes of any authority. Sometimes young men have a trouble submitting to authority, all authority, whether that be church authority, parental authority, dorm authority. And young men can become irresponsible to commitments, keeping promises to family and friends. And so there's a need to exercise sound judgment, self-control in the face of such opportunities and in the face of such freedom, okay? It's neat, is it not? In, in. Well, here's my notes. Men, by generalization, are knuckleheads. Knuckleheads. You're probably sitting there thinking, hey, Scott, you spelled it wrong. (laughs) No, that's the point. Men are knuckleheads, okay, with an N. That's the point. That, you won't forget that. That's the point. They're irrational. They do not tell the truth. 
I just had a young man, not just a few weeks back, in my office. And I just asked him some questions, let him go a little bit. But I also had some facts on him that he didn't know I had on him. So I just let him go, let him go, let him go until I said, hey, what about this though? Somebody saw you here and he said, oh, Pastor Scott, I'm sorry. You're right. I wasn't telling the truth. Okay, he's a young man, but sometimes young men are knuckleheads. They just do stuff. I mean, men can do stuff and still be a knucklehead. I mean, I, I would honestly tell you, even, even when I was singing and we were singing about the grace of God, I'm just like, Lord, I can't believe I still get to do this because I was a knucklehead. I did some of the stupidest things as a young man. Like, you want me to tell you one time what I did? I was thinking about this while I was on the plane, okay? Scott, well, Scott, you're a knucklehead. Don't act like you've got this all, th- you know, that's down. You're a pastor now, uh, so forth. You're te- I'm technically an older man, but I was a knucklehead. You know what we used to do? And this is just foolish. Um, I, we used to throw water balloons. I, I don't know, this is worse things. Water balloons out of a car. We, we just sometimes would get in a car. You know when you're a teenager? You just throw water balloons. And what we like to do is go to this certain park at Balboa, it was called, in the San Fernando Valley. And there was people roller skating, okay? Just, and we just, and sometimes we either had water balloons. And then what we did too is we went and bought fire extinguishers. And then the fire extinguishers, we put water and a lot of air. And I could get the fire extinguisher to the back wall. So they would just be and we just drive by and go, how's it going? And just spray them. Just, we were rude. Sometimes we do it to people on the bus stop, you know, just sitting there and you got the time. Yeah, it's 5.15. Wrong, it's 5.16 and just spray. I mean, we're, so one time I'm driving by, you know one of those cars, the Volkswagen thing? It's convertible. It's like a little square car. We're like, oh, there's that car. Look at that convertible. And there's like six of us in the car. And I see my friend lob this water balloon, but it was one of those ones where the water balloon was going. And I was just going, no! But it was out of his hand and out of the front car. And I'm watching the water balloon going because I looked in the thing, the Volkswagen thing. There was the two of the buffest guys I had ever seen in my life. I mean, they're as big as I had seen. So that's why when I looked and then I saw the mo, I'm like, no, but it was too late. The balloons didn't hit the bottom of the car, didn't hit the side of the car, right in the guy's lap. And I'm like, you idiots, you know? And these guys came after us. I was in the car with three guys, three of my friends, and three girls, or I was a third, three guys, three girls, or we're in high school, and these dudes are coming after us, and we're like, go, my friend's name was Mike Buchanan, who's also a pastor now, I'm like, go, Buck, and he's driving this thing called the Green Impala, it was like, we called it the Green Hornet, but we got six people in the car, and these dudes are coming after us, and so we're like, go, turn here, and then Mike's going on a busy road, and then he turns down a road. I go, Buck, what are you doing? Because after he turned right on it, it said dead end. I'm like, I I could see, we could see the guys visibly in the car, just, you know, and there's girls in the car, right? And so I go, Buck, what are you doing? He goes, I didn't know. So he's driving. So then he turns right at the next one, and he turns into a cul-de-sac, 
like, Bach, what are you doing? So it's like five houses, you get to the cul-de-sac. So he turns around, and as he turns around, he stops. These guys are coming right in the cul-de-sac. They get out of the car, and they got a baseball bat in their hand. I mean, this could have been a bad deal. I might not even be here today. And they start running towards, these guys were torque, bigger than John Montoya. I mean, they were big. And they're coming after us. I'm like, Buck, do something. Just a split second, they're running towards us. He guns it and goes around him. I go, Buck, brilliant move. And he got up to the stop sign. They get back in their car. They're following us. He, and then he goes out of the cul-de-sac and he turns what? Right, he's going to the dead end, Buck, you know that! <laughs> and so, and then they're gaining on us again. And so long story short, he pulls a quick U on that dead end. They pull a, a quick U, but ran into the curb and we lost him. You say, why do I tell that story? I was a class A knucklehead. I'm, I'm refraining from other things that I could tell you. But I look back at my life only but by the grace of God. This is why the psalmist said in 25.7, do not remember the sins of my youth. I doesn't mean you don't sin as an older man, but do not remember the sins of my youth. Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 31, 19, I was ashamed and I was also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. So you got Jeremiah, you've got the psalmist, you've got here Titus telling this, so there's a need for judgment. The S, S-E-N-S, S, serious choices. Why you need this? You're making big decisions in your life. The biggest three decisions, men, that you will ever make might occur in the next three to four years of your life. And I'll put it in this order. The question of your master, the question of your mission, and the question of your mate. And mate is always the third. You got to identify first, who's your master? Listen, if Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, then he wants you as a believer to possess this quality. He's got to be master. Then you got to know where you're going in terms of your mission. Then your mate. I'm thinking of the rich young ruler in the Bible, more interested in his material possessions than the person of Christ who he was standing in front of. That's a young man, is it not? He's speaking to God. And he goes away grieved, the text says, because he was one who owned much property. He made a serious choice. And listen, unless he came to Christ, that that man has been in hell for over 2,000 years and will be for all eternity. Men, you need to be sensible. You're making some serious choices. I'm thinking about the prodigal son. We know he returned. But he squandered all that his father had given him for a life of debauchery. So there's a need for sensibility and sound judgment to exercise self-control. I, the next, just walking down, instant, instant. A young man wants everything now. I just, it's the nature of the beast, if you will, if we don't control this quality. You want it now. Instant gratification, instant results. A typical quality of a young man, generally speaking, is he doesn't like to be patient. There's a lust for the now. Most guys coming out of college, my brother-in-law told me, says walk into his office. He's in the medical industry. 
And he asks them what they expect to get paid. This is just kind of funny. He says they often say, Scott, without blinking an eye, $100,000. This is the culture in which we're raised. You don't put your time in there. You're not patient. You get a degree and you want a six-figure salary. And my brother-in-law looks across. He says, what do you have to offer? You're 22 or 23, wet behind your ears with no business experience. And he usually pays them around 40. But the thought is, a young man wants more than he's worth. I'm looking back biblically. When you think of instant, I'm thinking of Peter. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest Jesus, he pulled his sword out of his cloak and cut off the guy's what? Ear. And we know that he wasn't going for surgical repair on his ear. He was going to cut off Malchus's head, right? He's instant. He wanted the kingdom now, even though Jesus had already been talking about that. Young men are instant. And in that case, Peter was instant and praised the Lord for God's grace. The stupidest one in all of the Bible is back in the book of Genesis. You finish the story. When Esau sold his birthright for a what? Meal. Man, that's about the stupidest thing I've ever heard. The dude's hungry He wants that hunger satisfied. So in utter insensibility, he sells his own birthright for porridge. That's a young man. Young man, I'm just telling you, you've got to be careful. In an age of instant gratification, godliness and the advance takes time. And the thing that you've got to master and I've got to master as an older man is still this quality of sensibility. But a young man wants everything at his fingertips and many are not taught discernment. Many are not taught in their home about delayed gratification. And believe me, young men, Madison Avenue Marketing is working overtime to fulfill your every desire and even create the desire that you don't even know that you need. And so there's a need in this day of instant everything that God's man needs to be sensible. B, kind of just walking through, just the need here is a young man sometimes is just belligerent. <laughs> he's just belligerent. He's argumentative. This is generalization. He's impetuous. Young men tend to be proud. And no wonder Peter told the younger men in 1 Peter 5 to humble themselves before the Lord. A young man can sometimes be brash, I, I remember one time, um, this is pretty vulnerable to say, because, you, know, you know, sometimes when you're in athletics, you just have to have a certain edge to you. And I grew up having that edge. And I was a point guard, and I played point guard at college basketball. You just got to be tough. I mean, like even on the basketball court, there's stuff that goes on all the time. One time, a guy was kind of trying to push me around inside. The refs couldn't see it. So I went by him, and I, I just kind of gave him an elbow in the ribs. Like, don't mess with me. You know, a lot of stuff happens that, that they never see. So the next time down the court, he just came down and went, bam! Just, ref didn't see that one either. Hit me right in the head. You kind of grow up around that. You know, that's not weird. That's just normal stuff taking place inside. But you have to fight, You have to fight for your position. You have to fight for your scholarship. You just have to be kind of on the edge. And sometimes in the nature of a young man, you tend to be argumentative, which is why that scripture Paul gave to Timothy, you know, the young man must not be argumentative, right? He must be kind to all, patient with wrong, you know, slow, if you will, to anger. But a young man can be belligerent. But here's the thing. I remember one time when I was a very young man, right as I was done, 
at seminary and I had this church talking to me in Florida. And I went up to John MacArthur. I can tell you where I was standing at the master's college. I was in the cafeteria. He was offering me a job as the college pastor. And I, I came up to him because, you know, he's like a mentor for Rick and I, especially growing up there as young men. And I said, John, uh, I've got this opportunity with you. That's <laughs> kind of vulnerable. And I said, I've got an opportunity in Florida to be a senior pastor. You say, could I have been a senior pastor? No. I was a knucklehead. I'm 25. I could never be a pastor at 25. You know why? I'm still trying to be a pastor today. I'm still trying to say, God, make me a better pastor to my people at Grace Church in the Valley. Make me a pastor to these people who bleed with these people and care with these people and shepherd these people. I'm still praying to be a better one, but I guarantee you, at 25, I was a young buck, you know, wet behind my ears, green. I didn't know anything. So I came up to John and I asked him that. What should I do? I still remember it. God used it. I said, give me one reason why... I should stay here instead of take that church. I was probably 25 at the time. I mean, I just straight through, full scholarship at college, straight through, made it in four years, never owed a dime, went into seminary. I was done with seminary at 25. And he said to me, I'll give you one reason. I go, what's the reason? He said, Scott, you need to be here because you're brash. That's what he told me. It was kind of like a harpoon out of heaven. You know, and I, I, I'm just telling you right there, I, I determined, I decided right there, a quick prayer, Lord, thank you. John, I'm coming. <laughs> I was brash. I was brash. And the Lord used those five years in my life. But I just say, when I see belligerent, I see me. I was just kind of a cocky young guy. And you grow up in that environment, you have to fight for stuff, but I just, the Bible calls it the boastful pride of life. I needed sensibility, but a man's going to need this quality. L, shortly here, I didn't know what to call it, whatever you want to say here. He's looking to, you know, put himself on something. He's lacking in something, or he's just lazy, okay? I didn't know what to call it. Uh, Young men are looking to give their life to a cause, But often in that looking, they're lacking a desire for relationships. They can lack a desire for leadership. And I would just say to you generally, okay, I'm not trying to take a shot. And by the way, John didn't tell me to speak on this. So I'm just telling you a little bit about what the Bible says. Men are, not all of you, but many of the men I meet are generally lazy. I'm just honest with you. Lazy. So I got Johnny down here. Um, he's shaking his head. Here's how I trained Johnny. You want to hear? I don't know if it's the best way. I don't want my boys being lazy. I'm not lazy. I, I was just grown, working all my life, growing up, just trying to excel in something, right? So I wanted that for my boys. So one time when Johnny was, I think he turned, were you 16? It was, uh, no, was it on your birthday? Oh, because, you know, you grow up in a pastor's home, you don't have extra money. Johnny, listen. You want a phone? You got to get a job. Johnny, you want to drive a car? You got to get a job. Johnny, I can't pay for you. I can't pay for your athletics at the school you go to. You got to pay for something. I mean, I had seven kids, seven kids. And at times we were eating macaroni and cheese. So you grow up in a family that big, you got to get to work. So Johnny wasn't quite getting it, okay? 
So he turns 16. I go, Johnny, at 16, it's time to go to work. You know, and I've been working with him all his life. I don't wait till 16. I was out there with him when he was like nine. It was the funniest thing, teaching him how to cut the grass. He was like this when he was little. And I'd look down the row, and the row would be like serpent. Johnny, no, listen. When you cut the grass, you got to cut it right. I'm trying to teach him because I'm trying to teach him how to work. So he turns 16. Johnny, I want you to go up to the top of the old road. That's where I lived in Santa Clarita. There's a row of um, restaurants up there. And uh, I want you to go in and I want you to turn in applications. I think it was kind of towards the late summer, if I remember. And right before that, right after that, it really hot. I'm talking over 100. So my wife drops them off at 8 in the morning. At 2 o'clock, a call comes in on myself. Dad, what, Johnny? Oh, just so hot. It is just, Dad, can you come get me? It's about two. So he's been out there six hours in a hundred degree heat that rose. And I go, how many applications have you put in? He says, ah, Dad. He goes, I've put in 32 applications and I'm just dying. Will you come get me? I said, Johnny, put in 32 more and call me in three hours. And I hung up on him. (laughs) I'm telling you, just, you know, you say, well, gosh, you're cruel, Scott. No, I'm not cruel. If he's going to survive in our world, he can't be lazy. He cannot be lazy. And you know what? By God's grace, he got a job. And people who are unbelievers say, Scott, Johnny's got a great work ethic. But I'm just telling you, men on the L, not Johnny, they're generally lazy. And men, I'm telling you, you can't be lazy. You've got to be sensible, clothed in your right mind, thinking circumspectly, and this need for sensibility in a society that's lazy. You know what? You could even, like, let me just give you an example. You could go to the master's college, and daddy pays your whole bill. And you don't work to get through college. And if that's the case for some of you, praise the Lord for a background. But you be careful that you're not depending on that kind of stuff. So I think the silver lining, I'm thankful for the Lord. It was hard sometimes having a family of nine in Southern California, but the silver lining in there is my boy's not lazy. My daughters aren't lazy. And, and part of that's the way you have to raise them. But I just think, I look in our culture, most dads enable their sons. Most dads get their sons out of stuff. Most dads overprotect their sons and don't teach them this quality of being sensible. So when I'm thinking of lazy, when I'm thinking of looking, you know what illustration comes to my mind? What were those guys in that movie? What were they? The Jungle Book? Remember, what were those on the... On the on the wire. What were those? Were they crows? Vultures. So what you want to do? I don't know what you want to do. You know that little banter that goes back and what you want to do? I don't know. You keep asking me what you want to do, what you want to do. I don't want That's a young man. He's often looking. He doesn't know who he is. And, And I'm telling you, I meet a lot of men who don't know who they are at 30 who don't know who they are at 35. Man, I'm pleading with you. You've got to develop this quality of sensibility now. E, is it the last one? Exaggerated opinion of self, okay? A young man just tends to think he's worth more than he really is. (laughs) It's just true. Okay, so then, listen, let me close. Stop grasping for the cobwebs. You're looking for something firm to hang on. What can I do? This is principle number four. What's the method, if you will, 
by which you could become sensible, okay? There's a lot I can say. Three things to you, though. I mean, what, what do I do, Scott, from this? Well, the third one's the most important. Let me just give it two preliminary, and the two preliminary lead to the third one. You want to be sensible. Number one, remember God's judgments. I'm just encouraging. Remember God's judgments. Rick, you're getting ready to go through Ecclesiastes at your church. Of course, you know this one. Ecclesiastes 11.9. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of your young manhood. Remember that one? Ecclesiastes 11.9. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. And then this. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. You just follow the impulses of your heart. Follow the desires of your eyes. This will help you. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So when he says rejoice, young man, during your childhood, just remember, young men, you as well as I will stand before the King of Kings. We will stand before the Lord of Lords. And God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Kind of a strong text. You know, I sat next to a woman, I don't know, a day ago, two days ago, flying in. She saw me working on the notes with you guys. And I was probably on the plane for a half hour or for an hour flight from Denver. And she said, man, you're a tough editor. Because I was just scribbling on my notes, you know. Because, and I say, oh, I, thanks. I, I'm not editing. I'm, I'm, I'm actually just marking up a sermon that I'm going to preach to young men. Oh, really? I said, hi, I, I'm Scott. And she introduced herself to me. And um, I begin to share Christ with her. And I begin to share the Lord with her. And I, one of the things she shared with me, she goes, I don't like that threatening. I showed her some of my points. She didn't want the threatening. But listen, young men, you will stand before the Lord. I will stand before the Lord. You will give an account of your life. I will give an account of your life. And what you need to do is you walk in an age that's filled with a man's glands and emotions. You need to remember, I need to remember that you're going to step before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and you will give an account of your stewardship. Let that be a governor for you. Not to cause fear in your life or in my life. But listen, men, don't you want to finish well? Don't you want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Listen, you've got to live with sensibility. You know, just as I'm speaking, I remember one time I was in a wedding with a friend in Chicago. I was doing part of the wedding. His father was doing the other part of the wedding, okay? He's my college pastor. And I remember being in the back room, okay, at a church in Chicago, much like this. And I saw him and his dad come out. And I was a young father at that point, a young pastor. And I saw them come out from a time in prayer, both in tears. And I thought, wow, that, that's kind of special. I mean, wouldn't that be cool if when, if when Johnny gets married, um, you know, I'm back in the back room before we come out and, and we're weeping. And I thought, oh, special. Well, a week after the guy got back from his honeymoon, his dad had confessed to this guy's mother of an affair. And my, my friend was just crushed, 
crushed. I, just, I still remember sitting with him just crushed. His dad was a pastor, I think I mentioned that to you, very high up in one of the denominations, so high up in a key denomination that they were going to be in the process of probably making him the president of a denomination that you've heard of. But what's sad is it got worse from there. He not only had an affair, then a month later, he left his wife, and then six months later, he divorced his wife, and then a year later, he married the woman that he had an affair with. And I just thought, for what? He's going to have to stand before the Lord. By the way, he's now a pastor in Houston again. No sensibility. And I just, here's what I wanted to tell you, though, in telling you that. They sent him off to a ministry to restore fallen pastors. It's a ministry somewhere in Carolina. And my buddy made the phone call on behalf of his dad, which is a little odd. And the guy who picked up the phone, who runs this ministry to restore fallen pastors and their families, because you get to that point, things just fall out, and there's been stuff there for years. He said, I've been in the business for 30 years. And he says, I've had a phone call all 30 years every single week of my ministry. Pastors falling all over the country. And what hit me was, he said, with only one exception, Every man that I dealt with that has come into me has been from the ages of 45 to 55, with the exception of one man who was 44 who had fallen to immorality. Now, I'm not saying that's a magic number, but what I am telling you men is learn this now. Gain some mastery through the Holy Spirit's control, through the grace of God at the end of Titus 2, And learn this now because you and I will stand before God. Secondly, and I don't need to say much here. One was remember God's judgment. Two, you need to flee youthful lust. You just need to run. You just need to run from the wrong thing. And you know, I'm thinking of Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. How then could I commit this great sin and sin against who? God. You got to flee. I mean, you can't be in the wrong place. You can't date the wrong woman. You can't date a woman with the wrong reputation. You got to run with the righteous. You've got to flee youthful lust. Don't be found in the wrong place. Don't be found in the wrong crowd. Don't be found watching the wrong stuff. This stuff is everywhere. Flee youthful lust. I'm thinking of Proverbs 5. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not even go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one and strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien and you will groan at your final end and your flesh and your body will consume you and say, how have I hated instruction? Listen, I sat with a man across my desk in the last year who was an adulterer. His wife was sitting right next to him. I said, pleading with him, she will take you back, won't you? I will. But he found himself in the arms of another woman. And so strong was the attachment that they're now divorced. Listen, men, you've got to flee youthful lust. 
What sometimes looks all pretty on the outside could be all dressed up and on the inside it is a big fat you know, cleaver hook that will consume your life. I'm preaching this to myself too. You've got to number one, remember God's judgments. Number two, flee youthful lust. And let me say this thirdly and I'm done. And here's the proactive part. You've got to, you know this, treasure God's word in your hearts. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against thee. The best quality to be sensible is a good offense on the word of God. As you men hide yourself in the book, you're gonna be able to think correctly as Rick spoke on last night. And when you think correctly, you'll have a biblical word, worldview to respond correctly. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the stole. You got that whole paradigm in Psalm 19 that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making, you know, those who are simple by nature wise. Men, you will be nothing more in the next three years than what you do with this book. I'm just telling you. I could write, it, I could write your, your course for you if you put this book in your heart, if you treasure these commandments, if you feed on them like David morning and night, he will make your path straight. But you've got to in this age of out of control lust, treasure this book in your heart. And as the deer panteth for the water brook, so my soul pants after thee. Listen, women. You cannot date a guy who doesn't chart and course his life by this book. If he doesn't do it individually, how can he ever lead you? One time a young man came to me and he said, I want to date your daughter. I have five of them. Two dudes and five chicks. And um, I looked at this young man. I I love this young man. I think I, I love him. I said, but you can't date my daughter. And he called me Papa Ardo. He said, Papa Ardo, why can't I date your daughter? I said, you can't date my daughter because you can't lead yourself. And if you can't lead yourself, how can you lead another? What do you mean I can't lead myself? And, and I was kind of picking at him a little bit. He wasn't 18, he was probably 25. I said, that cell phone in your hand, who pays for that? Well, my mom. Okay, that's what I thought. Hey, those pants that you're wearing... Your brother gave those to you, didn't he? Designer jeans. His brother was a designer. Yeah. And, and he was living on his own, kind of, you know, the guy had a great heart, but listen, he didn't have mastery over himself. He didn't gain self-control and sensibility. How could he lead a daughter when he didn't gain that? Men, I'm pleading with you. You've got to master this quality. It's the only thing he says to you. And it's, it's impossible apart from the Spirit of God. Look at Titus 2, verse 12, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. You say, what do you do? You get on your knees and you begin to plead with God. Lord, you just help me be sensible. By nature, I'm not. You know what I have to do in the morning? I don't have it with me. I have to read my Bible. <laughs> so why do you read your Bible? Because I don't want to become a professional preaching machine. I just get going. I used to have to preach at the church I was at previously four times on a Sunday. You know, I'm just, you know, just. And over a while, you just become a machine. You got to be a real person. So I have to get up in the morning 
and read through my Bible because I desperately need the book so I don't turn into a professional pastor. Because I will not be a sensible man if I'm not in the word in myself. Man, I plead with you. You say, what can I do? Find somebody that you can get accountable with, but that's not really on my heart. Sometimes accountability is overrated. I've seen people in accountability groups lying straight through their teeth to the accountability partner and leader. So listen, at some point, men, you just got to fear God that his greatest delight is your smile and his greatest distress will bring you frown. And just love him. Say, Lord, here I am. You say, well, Scott, I'm not a pastor. I don't care if you're not a pastor. You could just be normal guy. You got to plead with God. You got to get on your knees. You got to pray that he makes you a servant. Pray that he gives you this quality. But the only way you're going to do it is to fill your mind with this truth. Amen? Young men, you could be this man. You know why? Because if you're a believer in Titus, the grace of God can help you. Can I pray for you? Would you bow your heads with me? Just as your head is bowed, young men, you just cry out to the Lord. Maybe you're not that man. You pray that he makes you that man. You feel like, ah, Scott, I've already blown it. I've already blown it so many. No, forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what lies ahead. Listen, from this day, put a stake in the ground and say, God, make me a sensible man. Help me have mastery over myself before I can lead another. Young women, you of course need this quality. Be that woman yourself. Have an older woman who can train you to be sensible. Lord, help us. We could never advance apart from your grace. We could never advance apart from the Spirit. And yet, nevertheless, Father, here's what Paul told Titus. Urge, plead, exhort the young men to be self-controlled in their thinking. Lord, would you just help us by your grace? Help us see that day down the road where we'll be standing before you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And Lord, I just pray that we could be found trustworthy Take all of our youthful sins, forgive us for those, and cause us to be a man by your Spirit's help, by the grace of God, to be this man. Lord, some of these men might look and not have a godly father, and you want to make them the first generation. Father, instill in their heart that they could be that man. Encourage their heart. Father, help us learn to plead with you that in a world that rages an uncontrolled passion, we would be men that show this quality. Lord, we plead. We ask this by your grace. And Lord, I pray that the young women would find in the heart of a future man this quality. Because this quality trumps leadership. This quality trumps finances. This quality trumps the ability to buy one's kids toys. Here is the indispensable quality. Cause our hearts to yearn after after this. And we ask this all in the matchless name of Jesus Christ and all God's children said, amen. Okay, where's Jeremy? Are we up? Tanner, come on up. Well, a tremendous message. 
Scott, thank you again. We're going to transition from this with about 20 minute break. So you can head down right through these doors. There's a gym, there's snacks set up for you. Uh, you can get a snack, a drink, relax. There's bathrooms right out here. Remember the resource center. If you need any help from anyone, let us serve you. Okay. Just ask you guys are dismissed. We'll see you back here at 11, 11 o'clock. Okay.